0: Welcome. This is Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Starnes. Uh, Today, we're going to probe the work and the mind of Kevin Catalano, who's here with me now in the Macrophone Media Studios. This is actually the first show in this new studio, so we're happy to be here and have Anthony Sergius, our producer, at the Controls. Kevin's debut novel, Where the Sun Shines Out, was published by Skyhorse Publishing in October of 2017. We're going to talk about that excellent novel at some length in a moment. His first book is The Word Made Flesh, which was published by Queen's Ferry Press in 2012. It's a chapbook collection of dark flash fiction and short stories from 2012. Other work has appeared in numerous places like Story South, Booth, Atticus Review, Gargoyle, uh, magazine uh, Ethlon, a Journal of Sport Literature, and many other places. You should go to his website at uh, kevincatalano.com, and you can read a lot of these stories and see all the things that he's he's had published. He's been anthologized a number of places as well. Uh, the Surreal South collection, for one, was a fantastic uh, anthology. about from Press Fifty Three, that he has a story in there. Kevin earned his uh, BA in English from uh, University of North Carolina Greensboro and his M.A. and an M.F.A. in fiction from the Rutgers University, Newark, where he now teaches. He's an assistant professor there at Rutgers, Newark, and lives in North Jersey. So, Kevin, I've got a question for you. Uh, When you write, obviously from all the stories you've published, your novel, your earlier book, uh, you've spent a lot of time writing in the last 20, 30 years. So uh, is there any one particular reference book or trinkets or items you have by your side while you're writing?
1: Uh, hey, Sam. Well, thanks for having me uh, on. Um, so I used to have um, a writing desk. Uh, I no longer have a writing desk. I'll, I'll get to that. But uh, my writing desk used to be an altar. And it was uh, an altar of, um, you know, inspirational books. Uh, I had the elements of style. I uh had the Oxford English Dictionary, the compact edition, uh which, you know, each one weighs about twenty pounds. Um I had uh, an Ernest Hemingway book, not a book uh by him, but of his quotes. And then I would have set up all these um, you know, Batman figurines, these uh I would collect um Hollywood movie uh monsters, those figurines, um, a bust of Abraham Lincoln, um, and uh, it was great. This was when I was living by myself, um, and uh, and when I started having kids, um, my space kind of got uh, pushed aside, um, and, uh, you know, the desk would just kind of collect toys and clothes and eventually we got rid of it now my desk is wherever the hell I can find some space Um, so in the mornings it's just a couch Um, sometimes it's a it's a kitchen table um, or I go to the public library and write a lot Um, so you know I guess what I realized when I had my writing desk and my my altar and all my totems is, um, you know, that didn't help with the writing. Um, That was more of like, uh, you know, an external uh, vision of my mind and what I thought a writer would be. Uh, And I realized that, you know, when you're writing, it doesn't matter where you are. You shouldn't be looking up, you know. You're lost in the writing. Um, And, you know, so I think about people that, And I used to want to write by the ocean, and I wanted to move to a cabin in the woods and write. And now I'm realizing, well, you know, if I'm writing, um, I'm just focused on the page. So it doesn't really matter where I am or what the desk looks like or anything like that. So the the Abraham Lincoln bus didn't help you any. It did not, unfortunately. Uh, Even when I would talk. You know, actually, sometimes I would talk to the Abraham Lincoln bust. If I was in a rut with my writing, or I was in a place where, you know, what the hell am I writing about? I would talk it out. I'd say, Hey Abe, hey, what am I doing? Why, you know? And. Um, He ignored me. He never (laughs) uh, never talked back. He he didn't, unfortunately. All
0: right. Well, we're going to come back to Abraham Lincoln near the end of this interview, Mm -hmm. but uh, I've got a lot of things I want to cover. But ask that question. I have, actually, I don't have much in the way of rituals or artifacts around my desk either, but I do have one thing, one book that I cherish, and it's the American Heritage Dictionary. And this actually, it had belonged to my mother at one point, and she passed it on to me, or maybe I just stole it one time when I was home, uh, from 1969. And this dictionary, I think I just love it. And, you know, people, I know people look up things on Google. And in my office one day um, at the university I work at, somebody passed by and I was standing in the doorway looking up a book in a dictionary. And she said, well, why, why don't you just look it up online? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, well I like the feel of the book and I want to go into the book and see it. And this is a dictionary I trust. I mean, they're, they're obviously trustworthy dictionaries online. But when I'm at home and writing, I always have this one by my side because it's not and it has just great things just for example on page 1347 here of the american heritage dictionary it's got a definition of tin horn which is a petty braggart especially a gambler right below that is tinker's dam which is a um something of the smallest value not worth the tinker's dam right above it it defines tinker a traveling mender of metal household utensils it's got tin pan alley tin. uh you know, Tin Lizzie, all these things to find in this dictionary. But like it even has great great photographs on the side. I've got a photograph of uh, the Italian artist uh, Tintoretto, which it tells me is, his original name was Jacob uh, Robusti, he died in 1594. And below that, it's got a picture of a truck, a tip cart, a truck trailer being <laughs> unloaded from the side. So you can thumb through this dictionary and see so many things and learn about stuff this is just something google doesn't give you so these these great old dictionaries so uh i I love this american heritage dictionary and i I feel like i maybe i couldn't write without it um maybe i've probably when the writing hasn't gone well i've looked up one word and ended up on another but uh it's something i cherish that's great wanted to throw that in there so but i hope my mom doesn't ask for it back (laughs) all right well i wanted to um get into uh get into your novel where the sun shines out which was published uh, just october 2017 so still a fairly new book and one part of your bio that i left out is that you were born in chittenango new york a village outside of syracuse that celebrates the birthplace of the wizard of oz l frank baum And i think i is it chittenango 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 yes. okay and uh you know, your bio uh, I've seen talks about, you know, the, what this meant for you, that when you were a child, you met many of the surviving munchkin actors from The Wizard of Oz. Yep. And you describe them as tiny, kind, raisin humans who've since warped your fantasies. Uh, tell me about meeting munchkins from The Wizard of Oz filming and about this town and how the town sort of plays a role in the novel, as does The Wizard of Oz.
1: Yeah, Sure. So, um, there was one Munchkin um, in particular that was, um, I guess, a friend of the of the towns. Uh, his name was Meinhardt Robbie, and he played the Coroner in The Wizard of Oz. And um, I remember him coming to our elementary school. Um, I was maybe fifth grade, and um, You know, he talked to our class, and um, it was just so weird to see him and how old he was and small, but very kind, very interesting, generous person. Um, And since I met met, um, uh, one of the Lollipop Guild, um, Jack something, I don't remember his full name, but um, he just passed recently. I think they're all dead if i'm not mistaken um as of recently but um yeah this town was a in hindsight it was strange growing up in it um you know you every summer um you know there's an oz festival and it used to be called Ozfest until ozzy osborne uh, came along and uh and now it's Oz-dravaganza, which is a <laughs> ridiculous pun. But, um, yeah, so, you know, I marched in the parade. My mom dressed us up as munchkins. And, um, you know, there are yellow brick sidewalks in town. Um, there was a, a bowling alley called Emerald City Lanes, Auntie M's Cafe. And, you know, what— Stuck out to me, which was, you know, made this a place that I always wanted to write about, is the kind of contrast of this wonderful, uh, magical land of Oz and the kind of somewhat depraved, uh, economically depraved uh, town. So, you know, you had these yellow brick sidewalks, but they were more green because uh, they hadn't been washed, and you know, all these Oz-related stores and shops would close down, you know, a year later, and um, you know, they'd be boarded up. Um, so that kind of um, that contrast was very interesting to me and rich with meaning. And I didn't know what the meaning was, but I knew I wanted to write about it someday. Sort
0: of the Emerald City on Skid Row. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's exactly right. And uh,
0: so yeah, like there's a sheet is a, a factory. Is this a sheet metal factory? It's some sort of metal factory that several of the characters work in. That sounds is not Oz-like or dream dreamy right. at all. It's a, a rough place. I mean, you get into the the uh, economic hardships of a town like like that in Central New York, which has some pretty
1: rough winters too, right? Oh yeah, I mean the winters are eight months a year. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, so this, the, in the novel, the factory, um, I made it up. I mean, there is no Mohawk industrial or whatever it is in the book. Um, but a lot of my family worked, um, for Niagara Mohawk. Um, there was another, uh, big place nearby. My uncle worked for Carrier. Um, and these places in the, 90s um, you know uh, were shut down I mean the economy hit upstate New York or central New York I should say uh, pretty hard Um, and my family uh, were all working-class except for my father was the exception he was like a white-collar business guy Uh, but all of his brothers and sisters were pretty working-class and um, so I kind of created this this factory to uh, illustrate kind of the the class system that's happening around there.
0: Yeah, and it's I mean that you you this is a real town. I mean you you use the town by name yes. and a lot of the there's the NEMS cafe in the book. So yeah, a lot of the things. that now you you moved away from there when you were a teenager.
1: Yeah, I was seventeen. We moved down to North Carolina. So we went from a. Uh, school with a graduating class of 60 um to the biggest high school in north carolina with a graduating class of 400 um you know the first day of school uh some kid got shot um it was uh in charlotte in charlotte yeah it was um uh yeah it was you know monumental in my uh uh, development.
0: Um. Well, it's neat that you hung on to. I mean, so that's been you know thirty years, you know, maybe twenty years since you moved away from there, right? Or more, twenty five years. So yeah. The, the the town stuck with you and resonated, uh, and now we have this novel that that takes place there.
1: Yeah.
0: So this book uh, defies an easy description. I mean, I know Publishers Weekly called it a tale of loss, punishment, and struggle for forgiveness. Uh, Frank Bill said it was a psychological roller coaster ride. Um, and Alice Elliot Dark asked about like, how does a person redeem a real life nightmare? Uh, it's been called a thriller, but I mean I think it clearly fits in the category of literary fiction too. Mm-hmm. And uh, in some ways, it could fall into noir, or even parts of it could fall as, as a horror novel. So how do you describe it?
1: Yeah, well. Luckily, I don't have to, <laughs> but because it's tough. Uh, but if if forced, I would uh, I would call it dark uh, dark fiction or dark literary. Um, now, the conception of this so it started out as kind of purely I don't even know really what literary means, but it it started out as um, as literary. And um, it it began with an abduction of kids, but I was less interested in the abduction itself and the crime itself, and more with the fallout, the psychological fallout of the characters. Um, But uh, interestingly, um, around the time I was working on it, um, you introduced me to NORCON, and that got me really interested, and it's like, oh, you know people love dark fiction people you know there's a whole group of people that you know like uh dead children and you know people uh you know antiheroes and stuff like that um and so i started kind of reworking and adding stories to um to the book you know i guess you'll talk later about the story collection being turned into a novel um so anyway it's kind of like the noirish the crime the thriller stuff was layered in afterwards and then um my agent you know kind of helped me smooth it out um but uh yeah you know I I like I tried to write in a genre and I've tried to write a noir book and I always get in the way. I always complicate it. So I kind of like these things that um, they're hard to uh, define. And I don't do that deliberately. It's just the way my mind works is I complicate it, and then it's hard to categorize, I guess. Yeah, we're
0: well, just trying to tell a story and not worrying about which part of the bookstore it will be in. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and you mentioned uh,
1: Norcon.
0: Where, for those you who don't know, it's a fantastic um, literary and some film uh conference uh devoted to noir that's taking place in philadelphia every other year they didn't hold it this past uh 2018 when it was time for it but i think it's going to come back possibly in los angeles but noir con is certainly look worth looking up and it sort of grew out of a, a number of philadelphia re- writers and readers who really like the author david Goodis. so um it's a great festival. Yeah, we met at that and have been there for going to that for a number of years. Actually, we met before that. But Noircon is a, a fantastic one. So I mean, thinking about you know one thing, I think back to Noircon. Um, I saw Eddie Muller, who mm. uh, is a novelist and writes a lot about Noir. He hosts the TCM show Noir Alley, and every he actually self-described as a a archeologist <laughs> <laughs> uh, on his website. But he, uh, you know, the constant question you get from people who come to NoirCon or people are like, well, what is noir? And like, mm-hmm. try to define it. And, I mean, George Pelicanus, his answer was noir means black in French. But Moeller um, had an answer that he defined noir literature and movies as, the, if he had to choose one word, he would say empathy. And so we have empathy for these doomed characters uh, who can never achieve what they yearn for. And I thought that was an interesting... Um, an interesting definition. So, yeah. I mean, I wonder if you'd agree with that definition, and also, would you view these characters? And your maybe talk a little bit about your characters too. Are some of the, some of them seem doomed, or they might be? I wonder if what's your interpretation of them.
1: Yeah, they're absolutely doomed. Um, you know, one of the critiques, I guess, of my book um, is that it's too bleak. It's too dark. Um, there is no real redemption um and uh that was i don't know if i had that plan in mind when i was writing but um you know it just uh i liked the idea and that's kind of a thematic aspect is that um you know people don't change uh this this main character here who loses his younger brother when he's 10 um And, uh, that gets him into, uh, opioid addiction. Um, and, uh, you know, just bad things keep happening to him and, uh, and no real spoiler, nothing good is going to happen to him at the end of the book. Um, and that, you know, turned a lot of people off, but for me, that was the natural progression of, uh, this guy's life and that he you know he was doomed but there's an aspect of the book that i find optimistic and i think i'm one of the few that find it optimistic and that there's um, at the end there's uh, his stepsister um, and she is like uh, five years old six years old and has a relationship with him um, platonic i'm sorry (laughs) it's very platonic um, but, uh, my thinking is he is not going to change. He's done for, right? This, my, this, um, event that happened in his childhood with his brother dying, uh, and his inability to save his younger brother, he's not going to, um, come out of that. But he does influence and affect this, um, his young sister, and she's gonna grow up and have and be empowered by um what he managed to teach her um and so there that's the kind of the off the page hope um that's in the book um but uh yeah, doom, they're all doomed
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I saw uh, t c Boyle once, and he talked about. He likes to create these characters and really make them suffer. Yeah, and I think you've done that to some of these characters that you've created as well. Um, one thing, though, I think like Dean, uh, who's the main character mm-hmm. you're talking about, the young man, uh, and then uh, even Carol. I want mm-hmm. you to talk a little bit. I want to talk about something Carol. Talk about the Carol of character of Carol. They're complex, and I think that's what puts this into the literary fiction category on some Mm. points because they're complex characters. They're like no one person is all good or all bad, but these characters have a lot of things going on. And then there are things that you learn about them that you that make you feel sympathetic towards Mm. them. I mean, I think you know you go into the point of view of a lot of different characters. You go into a lot of different heads, even even Carol. And I think as you got to learn things about her later in the book, she seems totally you know. at first, you could say, "Oh, this is kind of a flat character, and this is she's just an evil you know uh, cipher here. But as you learn more about her and you understand what she's gone through now no defending what she does, but you can kind of understand maybe what has happened. So talk about how you made these characters complex and like maybe some of the how that you choose what perspectives to go into mm-hmm. and uh, maybe start by telling us about Carol,
1: yeah, so Carol is the um the woman uh who abducts um the two young boys in the beginning of the book dean and his younger brother jason and uh she is uh kind of partners up with her um husband at the time and um so when i first wrote that first uh chapter story um you know whenever i am drafting Um, I always do a kind of side profile of the characters. So if I know a character is going to be somewhat um, major um, or even, you know, minor, um, knowing that I'm going to have to kind of live with that character for a little bit, um, I'll do a, you know, just a profile sketch of that character. Who is she? Uh, What are her motivations? What does she look like? Um, and this is just for me, it might not be on the page, but it's just so I can understand um, their behaviors. And whenever you do that, um, you kind of instantly uh, make them complex. I mean, as we know, there's no one, as you said, there's no one who's purely evil. That doesn't really exist. Um, and so, and you know, you have to treat them with Uh, impunity as well so you know when I was wondering why did Carol abduct these kids what was she getting out of it and then later in the book she abducts other kids Um, and uh, so I stumbled on this idea that you know she lost um, a son who was about 10 years old and so, what she's doing is she's looking for other ten year old boys um to adopt <laughs> and, and, and forcefully adopt um and now the and so I came up with that I like that and then the way my sick mind works is i I wasn't satisfied with that, so then I was thinking, well, what happens if they grow up uh so Then I added this detail, well, once they hit puberty, she kills them. Um, So, yeah, I went to the sympathetic side, and then I went right back to the really dark side. Um, But that's, you know, interesting to me. That's all keeping myself interested in in these characters that, uh, you know, I want to keep exploring them. Well, it's one of the great things about writing fiction
0: is – you can do anything you want to do yeah. with these characters and uh, people may not like it. It yeah. may not sell millions of copies, but it's your story. And uh, I mean, one thing I would describe this novel is it's, it's unflinching. I mm. mean, in, in the, 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 addiction and the, and some of the violence and some of the things, I won't give away everything that happens. You need to listeners out there should go buy it and read it, but it's, uh, it doesn't shy away from difficult situations and difficult scenes. And that's to be, uh, I think that's to be admired. It's not, not easy to do. But I mean, one thing though, I think the novel is dark as it is. Uh, it's got some funny stuff in it. I mean, mm-hmm. it starts you know, we've got this, uh, Henderson, lovely, mm-hmm. the, uh, the drunken munchkin who comes back to the parade and hassles everybody. And then later on, there's like these, like, kids youth Elvis impersonator contest so you've got some really and there's definitely dark humor in here I mean I think of you know Flannery O'Connor was a you know master of sort of Mm. dark humor and things that would happen uh in her novels so you know I was thinking about why does dark humor and i know actually you're teaching a class at Rutgers uh Newark where you're looking at sort of how humor works to persuade people where does dark humor come from and why do so many readers like myself like it Hmm. Um,
1: there's a an interesting theory about um, humor as uh, it's called relief theory and that we make jokes as a release of tension and um, you know that goes into like Freud's pleasure principle and, and um, that we also make jokes out of things that we're afraid of and it's a way to kind of manage that that heavy tension, um, I think you know dark humor is um, is kind of more honest um, in that vein. you know It's like admitting there's some heavy shit in this book or in this you know in this world, um, and to make a joke about it is a way to um, both get control of the fears. Um, and also release the the tension um, that is built up in it and uh, I'm happy that you saw humor in those uh, those scenes or those uh, uh, characters Um, and uh, yeah I mean it wasn't really deliberate though Henderson Lovely was kind of a deliberately funny person Um, I think hopefully it release some of that tension that was you know built up in the other scenes
0: you know there's a moment where they're um, talking to Carol's partner when he's in prison and uh, they give him a hint and says well Fort Ticonderoga you can stock up on pencils while you're there <laughs> yes. and it's just just a lot of little subtle funny things in there that that really worked well and that uh, that I enjoyed Thank so uh, that that was good mm-hmm. thing about the novel uh, where the sun shines out I want to talk about is how this novel came to be I mean as those of you who read it will see in the very beginning there's an author's note that points out that many of these chapters were published as stories before the novel so you were writing individual stories along the way and then at some point you built it into an overarching plot so I mean, would this be called a novel in stories and describe
1: your process for putting it all together so initially, or not initially, but I um, when I was submitting it to agents, it was a novel and stories. And um, my agent uh, basically said, you know, stories don't sell, even novel and stories, let's call it a novel. And, uh, you know, she worked with me in kind of smoothing out the stories, making them weave together a little bit better. But um yeah, I wrote this... When I started writing about Chittenango, um, I was not intending on writing a novel. And I had kind of a PTSD uh, from my first novel that I wrote um, that, you know, took five years and was never published. And uh, the thought of sitting down to write another novel really kind of panicked me. So... Um, you know, I wrote a story, and the first story, actually, that I wrote was the Henderson Lovely story, and I wrote that in 2008. Um, and, um, and at the time, actually, right after that, I got my MFA, so I had to produce a lot of stories. And, um, you know, it's easy, once you have the setting down and you have some of the characters, it's relatively easy to... Um, write another story with the setting already in place and some of the characters already in place. And so the next story I wrote was the, um, what's the first chapter of the book where the kids got abducted. Um, and then uh, I wrote, uh, you know, I think it was the basketball chapter over time. And then eventually when it came time in the MFA program to put together a thesis A manuscript, you know, I had, um, I think it was six stories, um, 140 pages, um, and uh, that's the manuscript I submitted to my agent. And she said, yeah, I like it, but it's gotta be longer. So um, we started outlining and, you know, I started trying to think of the gaps that needed filling in. Um, and then I wrote other stories and that happened very quickly. Um, I'm not a quick, I'm not a fast writer, but I wrote six more stories in four or five months, um, we put it together and then, you know, we worked on just kind of smoothing the stories out. So I would never, I mean, that's not a, uh, formula for writing a book that I, think I could ever replicate <laughs>
0: well and you said that at some point it was easy which uh, writing usually is not it's yeah. usually a uh, it's quite a difficult chore so it's, it's there was something there that this all flowed for you yeah at some point absolutely um, obviously there's a lot going on in this novel and you know, it could lend itself to a reader interpreting lots of themes I mean mm-hmm. the difficulties of a, a, addiction. Both Dean and then another character, Brett and Mark, all struggle with Oxycontin and heroin. I mean, another topic, you mentioned the chapter called Overtime, which features uh, actually the character Mark's father, Phil, and his mother had died of cancer, leaving behind enormous uh, medical bills. You could read this as some sort of need for like some universal health care for people who work in factories and can't afford it. Um, I mean, I wonder if when you... And there, we could go to other themes, you know, th- throughout the book. But do you think about themes when you write? And you know, where do these these come from? How do you how do you create these stories that do have meaning in these
1: various ways? So, theme always. I always think about theme after uh, first couple drafts. After I figure out the plot and the characters, um, and uh, and when I look back at what I've written, I kind of some reflecting and you know what am I trying to say here what am I trying to say here and um, I come up with a kind of a loose theme and then I'll revise and um, kind of you know steer a little bit uh, towards those ideas but um, for the most part um, I don't think much about it uh, you know the one theme I alluded to this earlier that um, I kind of thought about after I was deep into the writing process and it was almost done was this idea of how, um, you know, this Dean, the main character, how he never, uh, gets out of his rut. And, um, and a lot of the characters, as I said, they never find what they're looking for. And, um, I was, it was more of a curiosity, We're like, what am I saying about this? And I, it kind of felt true, but this idea that, you know, a lot of people don't change. Um, and I think uh, our shared uh, friend and mentor, Alice Elliot Dark, said, characters only change if they're visited by three ghosts, which is fantastic, <laughs> yeah. right? And, you know, uh, when does that happen in life or even in, in literature except in you know, <laughs> Charles Dickens? And so I kind of um, talked myself into that theme that uh, we don't really change, but we can change other people. And so that's why I had these kids uh, at the end of the novel that they, they have some hope. You know, The generation before them didn't. That they have something um, that they can use.
0: Yeah, well, you know, another way to think about this, this dark fiction, is to think this is sort of a, a harsh reality. Mm-hmm. This is like a, you know, brutal realism, and this is how a lot of people's lives turn out. Mm-hmm. And that you don't. Some often the dreams that people have don't uh, don't succeed. Yeah. So that's uh, and it speaks to truth, in, I think a lot of ways. Um, A lighter, and I wouldn't maybe say it's a theme, but a reoccurring topic in the novel is is, uh, the game of basketball. Mm -hmm. Even like uh, the character Wayne has on a Knicks jersey early in the, I don't know if you're trying to say something about the Knicks there. Uh, But then there's the excellent chapter, uh, Overtime, which takes place during, there was an epic six overtime game between Syracuse and Connecticut in 2011. Was that a Big East tournament game or was that a regular season game? It was a Big East tournament yeah, game. The old yeah. Big East. Yeah. Uh, neither of those conference teams are in that conference anymore. but uh, And then Syracuse basketball references pop up throughout the book. Um, I mean, basketball seems important mm-hmm. in, this, in this novel. It's not a major part of it, but one chapter it is. Um, and I like where you describe Syracuse basketball, as I'm quoting here. One of the few joys for most Central New Yorkers, it got you through the bitter, relentless winters and helped us to distract from the scarcity of good jobs. So, talk to me about you know your love of basketball and how it you know it resonates in the life of some of these characters.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you um, you picked out that line because that is kind of the the central idea or role of basketball in the in the book and uh, for me growing up. Um, you know, I remember um, walking to the Carrier Dome for a basketball game and oh, so cold. And, you know, the snot is frozen in your nose and your eyeballs hurt. And, um, you know, the Carrier Dome, I think, holds uh, probably the most uh, fans in uh, college basketball. They're constantly breaking records. And, uh yeah, for a lot of us, that's kind of all there was um and it was you know even in second grade um our teacher was a huge uh, su fan and we all had to wear orange and blue whenever syracuse was playing um and uh it was just um i for me uh and for the book it was kind of the the brief um Sun that uh, that does seep through the uh, the darkness, um, and I was really proud how that there's again there's few stories that are easy to write. That story was not easy to write in terms of getting the basketball right, and I went through so many uh, versions of the story where and it was workshopped at Rutgers where people said too much basketball, too much basketball. Uh, it reads like a, you know, ESPN play-by-play. Play. That was very difficult. But speaking about themes, I mean, it's it felt like a gift that I was given this title over time. Um, and the very easy job of, you know, these uh, factory workers working overtime to pay off these bills and this, brutally long basketball game that went into six overtimes and that was one of those things that just kind of magically went together
0: well and they miss getting back to work on time so they're they're over their time and uh they that leads to bad things because they stayed for all six overtimes and it was a real game you worked a real game into it so that was uh that was a great story So, Kevin, before your novel, Where the Sun Shines Out, which we've been talking about, was published, you mentioned earlier you wrote an earlier novel that uh, that you didn't find a publisher for. But it, I know that a, a great short story came out of that. No- actually, I think the, that novel began a story called uh, Diagonal, mm-hmm. which was published in 2014 by Story South. So I'd like for you, if you don't mind, read me the first two paragraphs of Diagonal.
1: Sure knees buckling about to snap torso twisted wavy-haired head smushed in the corner abraham lincoln's long body is crammed into a too small coffin three mourners stand around the box gawking at him but the way i drew them then in the third grade without knowledge of depth and perspective the mourners look like they're lying down around him i meant them to be gawking at the dead president who doesn't fit in his coffin the picture drawing has never been smudged from my memory since third grade. And even though I don't have it before me now, I can still see it perfectly. The cloudy, lead-fogged area where my small palm rested on Lincoln's pencil-bearded face as I drew the rest of him. Only the idea of the beard and eyes and all that exist underneath the cloud. But the drawing has recently begged more from me since I rented this costume, slipped into it carefully treating the cotton blends like ancient skin, wore it around everywhere and became Abraham Lincoln.
0: So I told you earlier in the beginning of this program that we would come back to Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> and, uh, and here we are. So this is a story. Um, it's a young man who's you know, college age, dying of cancer, comes back to his North Carolina town and dresses, dresses up and walks through town in an Abraham Lincoln costume. Uh, complete with a stovepipe hat, mm-hmm. and which is offensive to the old Southern folks. Um, tell me a little bit about your fascination with uh, Abraham Lincoln.
1: Yeah, I, uh, it's hard to pinpoint when it came about, but uh, my father is big into Civil War history, and I remember he took us to Gettysburg uh, when we were young. And uh, at the gift shop, they have all these postcards that you can – by and the ones of Abraham Lincoln stuck out to me because of his kind of ghosty, tortured face. Um, and uh, I might have also had some kinship with him because he was so tall and gangly. Um, and the more I researched him, again, when I was young, um, you know, I realized how depressed he was, the melancholy. Um, but also, you know, he was, uh, he wrote poetry. Um, he was, uh, you know, obviously smart, but also he loved language. Um, but just this idea of how uh, internally tortured and depressed uh, he was, and also a big believer in ghosts and the supernatural, uh, you know, he and his wife trying to. Uh, have seances to bring back their dead son Willie. Um, you know, all of this stuff fit perfectly in my young uh, tumultuous uh, years, and um, and still does. You know, I just, I don't have the bust of Lincoln up anymore. I think uh, now that bust of Lincoln is in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Uh,
0: A favorite detail of mine in this story, and actually you can find this story online um, on Story South. If you search Diagonal Kevin Catalano and Story South or go to Kevin's website, you can read it. A detail that I really love, it takes place in a small North Carolina town um, in a family that's obsessed with Civil War history in the southern side of that, or what you might call the uh, War of Northern Aggression. (laughs) And uh, the town is named Victory. But in the story, you learn that when the uh, Yankees were, the army was had burned Georgia already and were going back towards Richmond, the town's uh, members burned the town down themselves to deprive the, the Union soldiers the right of doing so. Of course, they diverted in another direction that would not have gone near the town anyway, which they had burned. And so after the war they decide well we're going to read and the town was named Siler's Cross but after they burned down their own town they they named it Victory <laughs> which is such a southern an old southern thing to do and uh you know reading you know reading this and having this story uh, you know puts me in the mind of William Faulkner mm-hmm. who wrote so much great southern fiction that is uh haunted by the Civil War and I, I know I believe you were reading Absalom, Absalom when you began writing this. So talk to me about you know reading Faulkner and his novel Absalom, Absalom, and how big of an influence he is on this story and the novel that you wrote. But you know your writing in general.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Absalom, Absalom was I, I can't figure yet if it was a blessing or a curse to have read that at the time. Um, You know, it's probably similar to when young writers read Cormac McCarthy. And, uh, you know, you can't read stylists like that and not be influenced, especially when you're a young writer. And I think I was 22 at the time. Um, And, uh, yeah, just um, I'd also at the time uh, just moved back from North Carolina to New Jersey Um, I had this, this idea for a story and it was the, you know, what I just read to you and what Sam summarizes, teenage, uh, Southern boy who has terminal cancer and decides to spend the rest of his days dressed as Abraham Lincoln. Um, and as I I had that idea and, and I was reading Absalom, Absalom, and, um, it seemed like the perfect, um, marriage of, uh, finding, uh, a style and a mood to fit the plot. And, um, you know, so I spent five years, um, writing like Faulkner. <laughs> and, uh, again, for better or worse, um, it, I had a great time, uh, and that novel is still my favorite book. And I, I think what it was, or what it still is, is I don't understand how that was written. You know, it's um, it's so remarkably, uh, I don't know, it's like magic, or it's like uh, an orchestra, and trying to pull out, um, you know, what Faulkner was doing is like, you know, you're teasing out this intricately woven tapestry and maybe I was trying to um, you know and trying to figure out how that was written. I was doing it myself um, I don't know so again it's I'm not sure if it was a good thing <laughs> or not, but uh, but yeah I, you know I love that book
0: yeah no, Absalom Absalom is remarkable and I've read it a couple of times maybe three three or four times now. And at least three. And you find something brand new in there mm-hmm. every time. And each within chapters, there's things in there that mm-hmm. resonate and stay with you. And it's such a big, wild, swirling story that uh, it's, uh, it, it's, remar- it's a remarkable mm-hmm. piece. I mean, I thought the novel that you wrote was fantastic. And I, mean, no, I think it, it shows that good work. This might go back to the uh, darkness and the noir. Actually, I was, I was thinking about this with David Goodis some. Sometimes great work is not rewarded. Mm. You can work your ass off on a book and uh do a pretty good job with it and people don't want to publish it for whatever reason or it doesn't find its way in mm. to, in front of the right person so I hope that one day maybe I'll be sitting here talking to you about that novel <laughs> and uh 'cause it was uh it was an excellent one thank, thank you. you um I guess so what are you working on now
1: so now i'm um in the fifth year of working on another book um that is also uh, a pain in my ass um it's uh you know i've rewritten this book four times now and it's actually i first started writing it after the first NoirCon in 2012 um where i was inspired to write you know a, a noir novel um so I think I finally it just, it's about a masked vigilante, um, but, you know, after he's uh, been concussed and, you know, beaten and uh, psychologically damaged, um, and, you know, imagine, like, if Batman or Bruce Wayne um in his mid-50s is just kind of wandering aimlessly around Gotham City because he doesn't know where he lives anymore. Um, It's kind of like that. And I finally uh, figured out the form and the style. um, And now it's just uh, getting words on the page at this point.
0: Writing novel business is hard work. Huh? Yeah, I don't know
1: <laughs> why we do it. <laughs> it Seems stupid, doesn't
0: it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I mean it sounds like you know you you enjoy doing the work though. Yes. I think that's uh, something. I in my own writing, you know, if I'm not enjoying it, I probably wouldn't do it.
1: And it's also meditative for me. I find uh, even if I'm writing and if you know it's nothing that I can use. Um, it's still a, a form of meditation that you know I, I'll be in a better mood for the rest of the day.
0: It's better than spending all your time playing Candy Crush.
1: <laughs> well, that's arguable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Well, Kevin, I really appreciate you coming on the Writer's Latitude show here. And I'd encourage everyone out there to, uh, to look up his novel, Where the Sun Shines Out. Uh, You can also find more about Kevin on his website, kevincatalano.com. And, uh, again, thanks a lot. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Sam.